Good morning, and greetings in Jesus' name, and welcome to this part of our service. Certainly I've been blessed so far as we have uh, <clears throat> looked at the Sunday school lesson and the songs we sang, the importance of obedience in uh, very mundane things, and uh, how that simple thing can just bring such a blessing on our lives. So I have Jude's problem this morning. If you remember with me, uh, Brother Jude, when he wrote his letter, he told his audience, he said, I sat down to write you a letter, and I was going to write you a letter about the common salvation. And have you ever wondered what Jude's letter would be if he would have written to his people about the common salvation? What could have we learned about the common salvation that we don't know because Jude changed his mind. Well, we don't know that, but there was something more pressing on Jude's mind as he sat down to write that letter that he said, I've decided instead to exhort you to earnestly contend for the faith. And he, uh, he um, in his letter then, he, he writes very pointedly, about the problems that were besetting his audience and what was threatening their um, contending for the faith. His problem was he sat down to write one thing and he ended up writing quite another. That's exactly my problem this morning. I had prepared a sermon, and I had intentions to bring you another sermon out of the book of James today. But I text Delvin this morning, and um, I said, hey, by the way, here's another announcement you should make this morning. And then he texts back and he said, um, I think Christy might be here this morning. And I thought that was very good news. And I thought, you know, it's been a while since since Christy has been at church. And, and I was happy that she was able to make it here this morning. And uh, I also thought of the of the. Uh, messages that Delvin has sent us this week, and, and the fact that the road for Delvin and his family are a little bit uncertain at this point, I guess we would say. And so I, I changed my mind. I decided to talk about something different this morning. So uh, um, if it sounds like it's a little scattered, that's why. But I hope you can be encouraged by, by what I want to share this morning. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 4. Second Corinthians 4, and we are going to read verses 6 through the end of the chapter. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. 
We having the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, I believed, and therefore have I spoken. We also believe, and therefore speak. Knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus, and shall present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace which might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So I've simply entitled this message, The Christian's Acceptance of Light Affliction. Paul had many issues in his life. We think of Paul as this, um, of this uh, man of faith, and he indeed was a man of faith. He was a man that wrote the majority of the New Testament. He was a man that uh, didn't mince words. He was a man that uh, we learn a lot about salvation and its outworkings through what Paul wrote as he penned many books here in the New Testament that we have. But Paul knew something of affliction, too. This man knew something about what it was like to be stoned and left for dead. He knew something about shipwrecks. He knew something about rejection of his family and former friends. He knew something about being jailed and beaten and despised. This man knew something about affliction, did he not? And yet, he uses the adjective... Light. Light affliction. Why he chose that particular adjective, I believe is because he knew something about why he was, um, why he was going through these afflictions. And he realized that there was some, something he could be afflicted with far more than these temporal afflictions he realized that he could have stayed a Pharisee. He could have lost his soul. And when he, when he, um, when he viewed his temporal afflictions with what he could have been afflicted with, he said, this is a light affliction. I had to think, too, of our Anabaptist forefathers. Uh, most of us, probably many of, many of us have... Um, a martyr's mirror on our bookshelves. I would, I would suspect many of us do. How often they, they get read is maybe, maybe a different story. We maybe should read them oftener, even. But I remember as a, um, as a young boy, at times pulling the martyr's mirror off at school. I don't think my dad had one whenever I was a boy, but there was one there at school, and occasionally when I was done with my homework or whatever, I would, I would pull that that book off the shelf and look at it some. And it never ceased to amaze me how these people could go through these terrible, terrible things that they, um, that they experienced, and you know what they were. And they could do these with 
you know, songs on their lips. They could do this with um, joy, even, at times. And it almost puzzles you. And, and you say to yourself, you know, these people knew something of the grace of God that we don't know, or we have not experienced. We have not experienced it to that, uh, to that degree. And then I have to reflect on my own life, which, you know, in all honesty, there's been times that I've thought I had some affliction. But if Paul's affliction was light, I have to confess I have not been afflicted, all right? At least not very, very grievously. You know, my, my afflictions have been pretty much, you know, confined to uh, things like um, maybe rough relational waters or perhaps uh, financial problems here or there. But it doesn't even, it doesn't even hold a shadow to being stoned and left for dead. All right, it just, it just doesn't. You know, closer home, you know, I, I had a brother that passed away at birth. Um, and, you know, I've, I've lost uh, cousins and relatives and so on to uh, various, various issues. So that's a little closer home. But uh, I have not been at a place in my life where I have wrestled with things to the degree that Paul did or that some of us are currently. So how should we think of these things? Um, how should we think of afflictions in our lives? You know, we, we pray about things. We, we ask for things to be different at times, don't we? And at times our flesh just longs for answers. It longs for understanding. And the way we see things from this temporal point of view, we say this makes absolutely no sense. No sense at all. And the other question that I have asked myself is, why have things been so pleasant for me? Why have I not been afflicted to the degree that somebody else has been? And the only answer I can come up with is, A, I don't know. And B, perhaps I have some more growing up to do before the Lord can afflict me. I don't know. Maybe that's my problem. Maybe I'm not spiritually mature enough to take it. You know, Jesus accomplished his work by age 33. All of us have a time that is allotted to us to do our work. And perhaps some of us have just not been diligent enough or focused enough to get that work done that we need to get done before the Lord calls us. I would like to look through some of these, um, some things here in this, in these verses that perhaps helps us to understand how to accept light affliction, as Paul calls it. The first thing I would like to point out comes from verse 5. Let's turn back to that. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves servants for Jesus' sake. We can accept affliction when we understand that we are simply servants. Now, the King James Version does not do justice to the 
understanding of what a servant actually is. It would be much better understood if we go through our New Testament and most of the time when the word servant is used, we should cross that out and we should put down slave. That would be a much better understanding of the word servant. So let's read it that way. Verse 5, and ourselves slaves for Jesus' sake. Now what kind of rights do slaves have? We understand that, don't we? They had no rights. None. They did the the master's beck and call, no matter whether they felt like it or not, no matter how tired they were, no matter how little sense it made, and many were even abused because of their position. Now, there's one difference here. Our master does not abuse. There were some very, very, very good masters during the slave era that treated their slaves very well. And we have a master that even serves us better than that even. Okay, so that's the difference. But the truth of the matter is we're still slaves. And we still do the master's beck and call. Basic principle here is we relinquish our rights when we sign up to be a slave for Christ. We do. And that includes this mortal body. It does. As much as we recoil at that, it does. Verse 6 then talks about this master who commanded the light to shine out of darkness and has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We now operate, because of this signing up to be a slave for Jesus, we now operate under a different uh, format under different instructions. We now get our light from our master, right? So we have a completely bigger picture, a different picture than what we had before we signed up to be a slave for Christ. And by the way, that's one difference here. Slaves didn't even get to choose whether they were slaves. We choose that. We choose to sign up for this, right? We do. 1 Corinthians fifteen nineteen. Paul says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But the good news is, people, we have, we have such a, such a bigger scope of things here. We have, we have so much to look forward to here and in the beyond. And the only way we'll ever come to peace in this world with our light afflictions is if we have an eternal perspective. That is one of the biggest differences between an unbeliever and a believer is how we cope with the hard things in our life. If it's as mundane as a job loss or as grave as an illness that we wish we didn't have. I was a young boy during the 1980s, so I don't remember a lot of this, but I remember some of it. Because of my father's occupation as a farmer, um, this is something I heard about, and I even read about today, uh, even. But during the 1980s, it was extremely difficult uh, times for uh, for farmers, and I I won't get into that. If you want, if you want more more um, knowledge on that, we can discuss that later. It was very difficult. A lot of farmers lost their farms, um, on and on. And the suicide rate among farmers during that time was extremely high. 
because they lost. For the unbeliever, when he lost his farm, he had lost his identity. He had lost everything. He had perhaps, he actually, some people felt very um, discouraged that they had lost something that generations had put themselves into. And so the only out was just to go out and finish it. It's very unfortunate. I remember also going to a funeral of a young man when I was a, a boy. He was a teenager that worked for my dad, but he had somewhat of a unfortunate wild streak in him, and he had taken to drinking and doing some silly things, and he, and he killed himself one night in a drunken uh, car accident. So he was drunk, did not profess godliness. Um, as far as I know, uh, Bob, um, Bob was not a Christian man. So we went to that funeral, and I was probably, oh, I'm going to say I was 13, 12, 13 at the time, old enough to know that this was not, this was not a pleasant thing that had happened. But the thing that I remember the most about that particular incident was the absolute almost denial that people had. It was like a party. There was laughter. There was, it was just like, let's not talk about this. Let's not really look at what happened. Let's just, let's pretend it didn't happen. That was almost the feeling. But folks, that was the problem. If in this life we have hope only, we are of all men most miserable, and we don't know what to do whenever we're facing very, very difficult things right in the eye. Thank the Lord today that you're a slave. Verse 7, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We can accept light affliction when we understand that we are working with what the New International calls jars of clay. The King James calls it earthen vessels. We understand that the excellency of the power in these earthen vessels is of God and not of us. We understand that we will eventually return to the earth where we came from. And our desire is that through these vessels, God can receive all the glory. Paul tells his readers in 1 Corinthians 6, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which we have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. How can I best do that? How can I best do that? Is that always my decision how that is best done? Or do I leave that up to the person who has actually formed me out of the clay as to how he wishes to bring glory to himself through me? I liked um, Stephen in his um, in his uh, prayer meeting topics here the last while. I've, I've, I've enjoyed some of the perspectives he's brought out. And one of the things he said is, you know, because of God's knowledge of all things, he made the point that he knows exactly where to place each one of us, what time in history we should be placed to, to bring the most glory and the most 
productivity to his kingdom. And he knows exactly how he wishes to use us so that the absolute best can come out of that. It's like, put it in farmer's language, milking that cow for all it's worth. Just everything. He knows exactly how to get the absolute most out of it. And I would like to say that that is how we have to view our affliction. God is getting the most out of us. He he is using us in ways that we don't even understand to bring glory to himself. And I would say that it is very, very likely. Actually, I know I know this is factual. That it is through the tribulations of Christians, through the annals of history, that have probably saved more souls then some Christian has lived an easy life from start to beginning, to the, from the beginning to the end. I, I would dare say that is true. Think of Pilate. I don't know that Pilate ever became a Christian. We certainly don't have record that he did. But I'll tell you one thing. When he encountered Jesus and he saw with amazement how Jesus responded to anything but light affliction, it said that he marveled. He absolutely marveled. He knew that this man was made of stuff that he was not. And I would like to say, or I would like to thank Delvin and Christie for their um, example and inspiration that they have been in this way. Verse 8 to 10 describes another side of this. It says, we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are cast down, but not destroyed. Now, I want you to think about this. The, the, The punchline of these verses is that we can overcome these issues, right? But there's another thing we can bring out of these verses. Is that indeed, we are troubled. Indeed, we are uh, perplexed. And indeed, we feel persecuted. These are real things that we feel in the body. And I would just like to say that because we are in the flesh, we have to accept that as okay. It's okay to be troubled and to ask questions and to wonder. But where we get into trouble is if we let that take us places that we shouldn't let it go. Affliction gives clarity to what real Christianity is and another opportunity for the life of Jesus to be to be made manifest in our mortal flesh. You know, when things like death and so on become tangible to us, that's when we become a testimony to the life of Jesus. We as Christians are in a mortal body, let's face it. And no matter what any of us think, no matter how healthy you believe you are here this morning, it's much like David said, there is only a step between me and death. One step. Verse 14 
dropping down to verse 14. Knowing that he which raised up Jesus Christ, sorry, knowing, knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise us up also by Jesus and shall present us with you. Afflictions make real the reality of being raised up with Jesus. You know, when a person is on top of his game, when he's at a high point in his life, can he be raised up anymore? I mean, when you're, when you're, when you're on Mount Pisgah, can you go any higher? You know what I'm saying? In other words, thinking of it just geographically and just in a very earthy way, you can climb to the highest mountain, but that's as high as you can go. Thinking of it in a different way, in business, you can reach a peak in your business, or you can be like the, uh, who was it, Alexander the Great, that couldn't find any more um, countries to conquer. I mean, he was on top of his game. He could not be raised up anymore. But when we are afflicted, this gives clarity to how much raising up we actually need and how incapable we are of this ourselves. You know, uh, I get a chuckle, and I don't get to see this very often, but every once in a while, you'll get to see one of these big hopped-up pickup trucks or something like that that... The the aura that it portrays is, you can't beat me. Like, I can get through anything. And doesn't it just tickle you just a little bit? Maybe the carnality in us when we see somebody stuck in the mud, one of them beasts. It's like, eh, serves you right, right? Well, let's not be big four-by-fours in our Christian life. Let's realize that... When we get the feeling that way, when we, we begin to feel self-sufficient, probably we need a bit of tamping down. Perhaps we need some affliction. And I think that's a, that's a good reminder to us, whenever we have afflictions, how much we need Jesus. And that Jesus is ultimately going to be the person that will stick with us through those darkest, deepest hours. Verse 15. For all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace which might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. Now that's a verse that um, needs a lot of unpacking, and I'm not prepared to unpack it to that extent this morning. All right, But there's something that stood out to me, and that is the word abundant grace. All right? And I would just like to take the time to talk about this abundant grace for just a little bit in the context of affliction. I believe affliction is the only opportunity that we, or is one, let's put it that way, let's put it this way. It is one of the opportunities that we have to experience abundant grace. It's kind of like the governor on an engine. Uh, you could be putting along or whatever, but when you need a lot of it, Suddenly, you, you need, it, it gives it an abundance so that you can pull through that, whatever it is you're facing, and you need that extra power for just a period of time. And I think this is something that we, we know it, and yet, until you experience it, you don't know it. So I, I mentioned how that reading through the Martyr's Mirror, you say, I, I have no idea how people would go through that. I probably never will know that until I actually experience it, if the Lord would, if that would please the Lord, that I would experience it. 
In other words, I think there is an element that while we can all attest to the grace of God in our lives, it is when we are at low points that we experience grace that we didn't realize was even available to us. I think that's how Paul found grace when he had to accept his trials. I think that's how Stephen found his grace when the rocks were coming toward him. By the way, do you think the rocks hurt when Stephen got stoned? I'm not prepared to say, but let me just say this. I don't think it was fun. I don't think it was a fun experience. How do you measure grace, by the way? Can you quantify abundant grace? Well, let's put it this way. We sing a song that says, Marvelous, Infinite, Matchless Grace. Okay? Now, in that context, it's maybe using grace a little bit in a different way. But the point I want to, the thing I want to bring out here is the writer had it right when he said it is marvelous and it is infinite. It will never run out. It will never run out. If, if, if the world continues another thousand years, and it becomes more and more turbulent, and the grace that we need as Christians to get through whatever we face, it will not run out. It is only up to us to appropriate that grace that God has made available to us. The other thing I would just like to to mention here is grace is something we often think of that is that comes to us from God. There's another There's another part of grace. Paul told the Corinthians when he was exhorting them that they should be more... Uh, willing to give of their of their things to the uh, to the churches that needed help, he said, "Allow this grace to flow through you." You know something else affliction does. It 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 creates an avenue for the grace of God to come down through me and flow through me and back out to somebody else. It allows me to pour out myself and walk beside somebody else in their affliction. Paul told the Hebrews, he said, I want you to consider the brothers and sisters that you have that are bound, and I want you to consider yourself bound with them. So the fact that our sister is sick should make us feel that we are sick with her. And we should very much take the verse to bear one another's burdens very, very literally during times of affliction. Verse 16. Affliction is a time that can bring inner renewal. But though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day, one day at a time. And that's the one we cringe from. It's like, I want to find a different way to be renewed. I want to find a different way to be more conformed into the image of God. I want a different way, God, please. David in Psalm 119 said this, or perhaps it wasn't David. Did he write Psalm 119? I'm not sure. But anyway, this is what it says in Psalm 119. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, I have kept your word. This writer realized that the affliction had done him a lot of good spiritually. A few verses later, he says, It is good for me that I had been afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. 
Now, I think it is, uh, it is true that affliction brings clarity to life that we cannot have otherwise. And it is a time of the inner man can be strengthened. But I don't want you to run away here and say that's the only way. Or that when someone is afflicted in a, in a way that is, um, um, yeah, that we wish wouldn't be, that they somehow had a problem that they needed strengthened. No, that's not it. But what I'm saying is it can be used in that way to experience growth that otherwise probably could not be experienced. And always our flesh is there to say there must be a better way. But I'm here to just challenge us. Do not let your afflictions or somebody else's afflictions go to waste. Do not allow that to be spiritual growth for all of us. Verse 17, now the, the verse where we take the title of the message, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh in us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Now, we tend to think of things in proportion, okay? So what, what Paul is trying to get across here is, now, I, th- I think when the, when the readers, when I read this, I think, boy, Paul was really afflicted. He, he, must, he must really have a mansion in heaven for, for all the affliction he went through. That's the way we tend to think of it. Proportionally, he should have a big one. Paul says, first of all, my afflictions are light. Second of all, even if I get a shack in the blickets of heaven, it will be a far more exceeding than the eternal weight of glory that will make my light afflictions look like nothing. I'll be satisfied with a little shack out there in the blickets if I can be in glory. Now, I'm really, I'm just trying to make the point. The point I'm making is there is absolutely no proportion. We cannot, it's like apples and oranges. You, you, you can't compare the two. They're two different things. They're grown two different places. And Paul's trying to say is these afflictions, yes, they're here. We have to deal with them. But think about what we have beyond. It is, it is infinitely so uncomparable that the affliction is light. Okay? You know, currently it feels like we're going through a a big and troublesome affliction. But we have to say, as hard as this is to say, it is a light affliction in the magnitude of eternity. And that is not ignoring the issue. That is only being real with an eternal perspective. Verse 18. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. All right, so now we're going to get a little spiritual eyesight test here. We all wish we had 2020 vision. Some of you probably do, maybe do. I don't anymore, and it frustrates me. I dislike wearing glasses outside, so I don't. But if I get something small that I have to read outside, I'm frustrated because I can't read it. My eyes are failing me, all right? We need an eternal spiritual vision. 
Compare this to verse 4. It's the same chapter. We didn't read that. But Paul talks about the God of this world who blinds the eyes of them that believe not. All right, so that's the contrast. You can either have eyes that see things so clearly that we see into the beyond and we get things from an eternal perspective, or we can keep our eyes down so low that the God of this world will just eventually blind us and will not allow the glorious light of the gospel to shine into our hearts. Afflictions sharpen spiritual eyes. I just recently, this week actually, it was verified to me that a person that most of us would actually know here, actually, whose parents worked their entire lives for a farm, that farm is now gone. All right? That's a very, very, very temporal, temporal, extremely short-sighted vision to have. Folks, we have to have visions beyond businesses and farms. We just absolutely have to. Or we're going to be sorely disappointed people. I know that the earthly takes so much of our focus. But I can tell you this. According to this verse here, when we are afflicted, it is like a trip to the spiritual eye doctor. You know, the Psalms is full of verses that actually put this in perspective. If we truly believe that we spend our days as a tale that is told, have you ever sat down with one of those little golden storybooks? You know, about, you know, I don't know, do they do these anymore? About, you know, the little red caboose and those things. How long does it take to read that? Five, ten minutes? In reality, that's our life. And we're going to spend that five or ten minutes working to build up wealth on this earth? Psalm 89, 47. Remember how short my time is. <laughs> I had an aunt that lived to be 104, a great aunt. Her time was extremely short in, compare, in comparison to, to eternity. Psalm 90:12. Teach me to number my days that I can apply my heart to wisdom. In conclusion, turn with me to Romans 5. Romans 5, I'm going to read the first five verses. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations. Here we go again. Also knowing that tribulation worketh patience. Who doesn't want to be a patient person? And patient experience. Who doesn't want to be an experienced person? And experience hope. Who doesn't want to be a hopeful person? We want all those things, but boy, we sure hate how we have to, what we have to go through to get there, don't we? That tribulation part, if we could just get away from that. But verse five is what I want to hone in on. And hope maketh not ashamed. In the New King James, that reads, hope that does not disappoint. 
because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. I want to just, I want to comment on this hope that does not disappoint. We live in a world that has been disappointed a lot in the last while. A lot of disappointment. There's a lot of people that would have hoped that Trump would be elected president. There's a lot of people that have hoped that Biden would do a better job than what he's currently doing. I mean, there is a lot of dashed hopes out there in the in the governmental system in which we live. And I'm not even going to go there. I've said enough already. But anybody that has been putting their hope in the political process has been sorely disappointed in these last times that we have lived. And we could even get more mundane than that. Uh, there was times this summer that I had hoped for rain. And Clean had hoped it wouldn't rain, right? But we have these things we hope for. And sometimes, many times, that hope is like that phantom cloud that comes and goes and does not, does not produce. But here it is. This is a hope that will not disappoint. All right? Can we grasp that? This, these afflictions that we go through that produce all this good stuff doesn't disappoint. Even though we sit there and we look at it and we say, I want more answers. Just give me what comes after the semicolon, please. I just want the next verse. I want the next chapter. I want to understand this. No. What we need to do is rest in God, put our hope in the Lord, and understand that this hope will never disappoint. Life is full of crushed hopes. And sadly enough, there are going to be people that wake up someday on Judgment Day and be sorely disappointed that what they had put their hope in was a phantom cloud that had disappeared. Folks, that's not the story. And that does not have to be the story of you and I today. We can put our hope in something that will never, never, never disappoint. I trust that you have been inspired to embrace affliction this morning. You know, we, we, we walk in, in, uh, in uncertain times. We realize that our sister could be healed. The Lord could choose to do that. And we pray that he still will. Yet at the same time, I want to encourage us, our hope is not shaken, no matter what the outcome is of the next weeks and months ahead.